Chapter 15 of Revelation. It's a very small chapter, as you might have noticed by now. There's eight verses, so we're going to get out of here pretty early. Just kidding. Don't want to get your hopes up. We might. I don't know. We might. Praise the Lord. But there's a lot of good information in this chapter that we want to mine out of it and applications for our lives. And um, so I think it's going to be a, a huge blessing for all of us. Lord God, thank you again for this time. We're so excited to be in your house. And Lord, I just thank you, Father, for, Lord, your incredible grace and mercy that you pour out upon us. Father, your love is so deep, who can know it? And Lord, we can never run out of your, forgive, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, your love. We can never run that dry. And Lord, in these times that we're living in, they're exciting. They're a little concerning, to be honest, as we look at the world around us. But Father, I pray that we would be people that would be in tune with your heart and that we would not be ignorant of the times that we live in. Lord, let us be well-educated people as we look at the world around us that we would be able to see how it lines up with your word and lines up with scriptures. So we thank you, Lord, for, again, this building we can meet in, and thank you for the fellowship that we have, one with another, a like-mindedness in you, Lord. We give you honor and glory, and may the words I speak tonight be yours. In your name, amen. Chapter 15. This chapter is preparation for what is about to happen in the following chapters, chapters 6 through 19, and that is the seven bowls of judgment that will be poured out upon the world. I've named this uh, the title of tonight's teaching, Seven Super Bowls, and that's what they are. They're bowls that will be dished out or handed to the angels, as we will see seven angels come out of the temple. Each one of them is given a bowl, and it's filled with judgment, to be poured out, plagues that will be poured out upon the world. Now, if we just ended it there and we all walked out tonight, person maybe tuning in tonight for the first time would be like, I knew it. I knew it. God's mean. God's mean, and he just, all he's into is, is wrath and this and that. And we're going to talk a little bit about tonight how that is not true. That is absolutely not true. Yes, sin and depravity must be dealt with. That is true. That is fact. But what people misunderstand or what they miss totally is, you know, the people that have that mindset that God's mean. And all he's always doing is having the Israelites taken out the Amorites and, and slaughter every man, woman, and child, and even the oxen, and leave nothing living. And, man, so brutal, so mean. What they're missing in that whole picture is the incredible patience of God. The wheels of justice with God move very slowly, but they do move. And when they do, they deal with sin in a very serious manner. And we're going to see as we get into future chapters, chapters 6 through 19, we're going to see some gruesome things uh, in the final days of the tribulation being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. These are people that, in their sin, 
in their depravity and um, in their um, refusal to accept the work that Christ did on the cross for their sin must eventually be dealt with. So this chapter prepares, we see the beginnings and the foundations of what is about to be poured out upon the world at that time. So, chapter 15, again, this is happening during that time called the tribulation. The tribulation is that seven-year period after the rapture of the church. You and I, the church, will be raptured, taken up. Jesus will come back, and he will get us the bride and take us to heaven for seven years, and we will rejoice. We will be in heaven with him, and we'll be in awe. But what's happening down here on earth is the exact opposite of that. Judgments being poured out upon uh, the people that have, that have and are at that time rejecting him. But it's very interesting too because there will be a lot of people that will come to know the Lord during that time. We've said it before, that's going to be one of the greatest revivals of all mankind's history. People will come to know the Lord in vast numbers. They will listen to the 144,000 that God has chosen and preserved. They will hear the angels flying in the sky, warning them not to take the mark of the beast. Don't give in. Don't cave. They will uh, accept the Lord into their hearts, although it'll be a very terrible time for them to live because they will quite literally be on the run for their own lives. Uh, and, and seeing some very terrible times themselves. This chapter happens during that time, and John is writing what he has, is being revealed. As you remember, he's on an island, uh, the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. That was that, isle of, uh, that island of exile for prisoners to go to, and it was during that dry, barren, deserty island, that dry place in his life, that's when he got the vision and was shown all of these things, quite literally the, rev the revealing of Christ. When we talk about Christ in reference to Revelation, it is not that, that little babe, Jesus Christ, as he came at Christmas. Uh, and it's not that Christ that we see uh, being beaten. It's not that Christ that we see as an adult being homeless and just kind of out. Uh, he had no place to lay his head. Um, he's not that Christ who uh, is being ridiculed and mocked. When we talk about the Christ in Revelation, we see him in his risen state. Christ risen on the throne in control and us giving our lives over to him, asking him to take control of our lives. We see a triumphant king in the book of Revelation, and that is what's so encouraging to you and I. We see Christ in control even today, do we not? And we are reminded of that. Even though all the bad things that are going on in the world today, we can name a lot, but we see a lot of good things happening too, things we never would have thought would be reversed or changed. And so God is working. He is in control. And our desire is to give him complete and total control of our lives, especially in these days, and just rest, as we learned last week, rest for our souls uh, that only he can give. Chapter 15, uh, let's start there. Verse 1, John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, 
seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. Again, we're talking about this wrath, these plagues. And this is where we get into that thought of, if we're not careful, we, you could get that picture that, man, God, he's just, he's just waiting up there to just, you know, pounce and, and pour out judgment, uh, you know, on, on everyone. What we forget about is his incredible patience. Would you go back to Genesis? Let's go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we're going to start in chapter 15, and I want you to see this. Because this is God talking to Abram, and he's talking to a people that he would be the father of, quite literally, even before they were really a nation. God is talking to Abram. Chapter 15 of Genesis, we'll start there in verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But watch this. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That gives us a clue. That gives us a picture of what God's doing. He says, listen, the people that I'm going to put you in charge of, your people, they're going to go to a faraway land, a foreign land, and they'll be persecuted. They're, they're going to have some very troublesome times in that land for about 400 years. But after that, they're going to be delivered, and they're going to leave that place with great possessions. And indeed, they did, didn't they? They had gold, and people were just throwing them gifts, like, just, just go. We've had enough of you because of the plagues that were brought onto them. And then afterwards, God says, I'll judge that land. I'll judge them. And, and he, indeed, he did that as well. But the interesting part that I want to draw our attention to is that last verse, verse 16. In the fourth generation, he says, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. While the Israelites were captive in Egypt, there was a work going on that God was doing and allowing in the promised land, the future promised land, where the Israelites would then go and inhabit someday. It was, it was uh, populated by cultures and peoples, and those people were in extreme depravity and sinfulness. They were cruel. And in quite, if they were left to their end, they would have self-destructed anyway. But during the 400 years that the Israelites were in Egypt in bondage, God was allowing those people, he gave them 400 years to get right with him. There's extreme patience there. And some people have pointed out the fact that, well, 400 years, that's twice as long as we've been a nation. And indeed, that's true. Because we look around at our world and we're like, man, could you imagine if we stayed on this same route, 
the things that we see to, in today's world that's allowed and celebrated, how, how much worse could it get if we were allowed to you know, be around for 200 more years? Man, it, it boggles the mind. But God was allowing them, they continued in their depravity, they continued in their sin and in their pagan worship of idols and, and all of the things that went along with that, which was so grotesque. God was allowing time to go by for them to get right with him and call out to the God of heaven. But did they? We know the story. They did not. The wheels of justice with God turn very slowly, but they do turn. And it said there in that fourth generation, it was time for them to be dealt with. And that's why when you read in the Old Testament, they say, oh, it's so bloody, going in and tearing up, and men, women, and children, and oxen, and oh, they were so brutal with the edge of the sword and, and all of this and that. It was because, quite literally, God was using the Israelites to eradicate that sin and that depravity that had infiltrated so deeply into the area in which they were going to future inhabit. And he didn't want any of that around. So it didn't, it's not like just one day God sent them in and just destroyed them just because they had 400 years to get right and the same is true with us even today the lord jesus even when he died on the cross for our sins from that point on humanity has had opportunity to get right with him and some have answered that call and seen that salvation promise and some have not but the call is still there the chance to get saved and to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus is still there, even this very moment. The invitation is open. Well, back to our text. For in them the wrath of God is complete. You know what? It seems clear. The bulls aren't quite full yet. God's wrath is it's not quite complete yet, it seems, in today's world, right now, this moment. Because if it was, we wouldn't be here. If it was, we'd be gone. We'd be in heaven. The rapture would have already happened. We'd be in the middle of the tri tribulation. and or Not we, the people still inhabiting the earth would be in the middle of the tribulation, and judgment would be at the very door. But as it, as it stands right now, tonight, this moment, we're like, man, Lord, how much worse can it get? How much longer? It's not time yet obviously, but it's coming. It's coming very soon. Verse two, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. He sees a sea of glass mingled with fire, but who does he see? He sees the, those who were martyred. He sees the tribulation believers, those who were martyred. What does it say? It says those who had the victory over the beast, we learned who that was, over his image, over his mark, these are the ones who listened to those angels. Don't take the mark of the beast. It can't get any clearer than that. 
it was quite literal to them, don't take the mark of the beast. These are the ones who had victory over the beast. These are the ones who did not take uh, the mark of the beast and cave to that pressure. These are those who were martyred. These are those believers who made it to heaven. And they're standing, I wanna point this out to you. It doesn't say they're standing by the sea. What does it say? They're on it. They're standing on the sea of glass. Now, my thought is this. It's my heart's belief that they're on quite literally, this is actual sea of water. Uh, of A sea of glass meaning it's just calm. Mingled with fire, I'm not quite sure, but I see them standing in my mind's eye. I see them standing on the water. And why is that important? Where else do we have a reference of someone standing on water? Exactly. Turn back with me. Let's go to Matthew. Let's take a look at that. Matthew chapter 14. I think this is cool because it also has somewhat of an illustration and a parallel even to us today. Chapter 14. We'll start there in verse 23. And when he, Jesus, had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Do you guys do that? Just a side note, I, would, I just thought of this. This is something that I always encourage my youth groups to do. I told them, hey, find that place, that quiet place that you love. I don't know if it's uh, you know, a rock at the beach or maybe it's a, a hike you take and there's a rocket overlooking the river and the mountains, whatever it is, do you have a quiet place? Do you have that place where you can get away from the phone, get away from social media, get away from people? Do you have a place where you can just go and get away? You know, Jesus did that all the time. We see that a lot. And right here, he goes to the mountain by himself to just whew, get away from it all. Do you know ministry's hard work? You guys know that, right? Ministry's tough work, especially what Jesus was doing. And he was in a physical human body. So he felt pain, he felt tiredness, he felt all that stuff. And sometimes he's like, I'm worn down, I'm worn out. Man, I, I wanna get away and go talk to my father. And I always encourage my youth groups, and I'd encourage you as well, if you don't have a quiet place, get one. I have one. I drive down there by the ocean, there's a little road that I take and it gets me down right on those jagged rocks. It looks like somewhere where like the lunar landing would have happened, minus the ocean. It's all rocky and jaggedy and stuff, but I drive down there and I just love how the waves just crash into the rocks and make a big old splash. And I can really sit there and just absorb the beauty of God's creation there. That's my quiet place. I go there and I pray. I mean, I, I study, I read, and I just seek the Lord. I turn everything off, my phone silent, and I just get away from it all. And it's a really cool thing to just get away from all of the distractions. And you can tune in to what the Lord, because that's when the Lord speaks to you. The Lord, you know, people always say, well, I, don't, I don't know, I, never, I don't hear the Lord's voice. Do you get away from all of the distractions that are in your ear long enough for him to, to talk to you? So that's my encouragement. Jesus did that. In verse 23, he went onto a mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, 
he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. You guys know this story. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. They heard his voice. And immediately, they must have been comforted. They didn't know what they were seeing at first. And who could do that? That's got to be a ghost. Oh, no, guys. Hey, it's me. Don't settle down. It's me. Oh, Just hearing his voice would have comforted them. Don't be afraid. And verse 28, and Peter, gotta love this guy, he answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Who would be that bold? Peter. That's that's who he was. He was that guy. You gotta love this guy. Everyone else is thinking, okay, get in the boat before you you sink. Not Peter. He's like, hey, let me come to you. If it's you, because if it's Jesus, you can make that happen in Peter's heart. And so what did Jesus say? One word, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, watch this, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Do you know, that's us sometimes. We're doing good. We're walking on water. We got our sights on the Lord and everything's good, but then all of a sudden, boom, a big old boisterous wave's coming at us. A big old trial in life. And then here comes another one on this side. And all of these things begin to happen in our lives, and what we do is exactly what Peter did, is we take our eyes off of Jesus and the focus, and guess what? We get distracted. And we feel like we begin to sink too. We sink either into a depression or we sink in, uh, in our spirit somehow because we're so concerned about all these things going around when all, the, all Jesus would say is, hey, look at me. I've got you. What did we just say? Jesus in Revelation is a triumphant king on the throne and in control. That's true. And it's true for you and me today. We stress out and we worry and we freak out, and I'm guilty too, guys. But our focus should be where? It should be on Christ, just straight ahead. Just keep our eyes on him, and we're there. And immediately, he says, he he stretched out his hand, and he caught him and brought him up. Jesus must have been a strong dude. I'm sure Peter was no slouch. Pull that guy up like that. It's pretty awesome, our Lord. You see his heart there. And it's just like these guys and, and Peter and Jesus standing on the sea. It's kind of like, wow, I think about the martyrs. I think about those who lost their lives or will lose their lives uh, during the tribulation. 
and all of the boisterous things that are happening to them in that that turbulent time, a time that is so turbulent and so terrible that mankind has never seen the likes of, they will go through and they will witness and endure. And in all those times, guess what? They're rewarded too, standing on the sea of glass. I love that. I love that picture, you guys. Back to Revelation. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. You know, for Revelation being so filled with plagues and, you know, bowls of judgment and, you know, two-thirds of mankind being wiped out and wars and evil ruler, all this stuff, sure there's a lot of singing going on. Have you noticed that? We've talked about in previous chapters how uh, the, the elders will bow down and just bust out in song. The angels sing. The creatures in heaven, the, the four heavenly creatures in heaven, they bow down and they give worship to the Lord. Now here's more singing. A lot of singing in Revelation, if you think about it. And now this chapter tells us the exact same thing. There's two songs here that are mentioned that they sing. John's writing this down. He says the, the, they sing, these, these people that are on this sea of glass mingled with fire, they sing a couple of songs. We just sang two songs a moment ago, and our hearts were blessed. We could have come in here and, and started talking about our trials and how we're wrong, we were wronged by a coworker, and some guy cut us off and almost hit our car on the way here and flashed a, a single digit to us, and we all know what that means, and got him mad and offended. But what'd we do? We came here, we saw each other, we fellowship for a minute, gave each other a hug, welcomed one another, and we began to sing. We didn't spend a lot of time on our troubles and trials and all the stuff that we're going through, even though there is a time for us to share and pray for one another. That's not my point. My point is this. Here you have these, a group of people who quite literally will go through the most gruesome time in history ever recorded. They're going to be running for their lives. They could be standing around talking about the beheadings and, that, and telling all of their war stories. Yeah, I was beheaded in the open square. Well, I starved to death because I couldn't buy or sell. Because that angel's saying, don't take the mark. So I didn't. So, and they could be sitting around doing all that like we could tonight. But guess what? They do what we chose to do tonight. And they sing songs. They praise and worship God. And the songs that they sing are interesting. Because these two songs listed, the song of Moses takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. And the song of the Lamb is in the New Testament, separated in writing by about 1,500 years. What's the song of Moses? Well, some believe that it would be that song that they sang in Exodus chapter 15 after they made it to the other side of the Red Sea. They're barreling down. Moses has taken the people. They're cornered on both sides. To their back is the Red Sea. The people are like, what'd you do to us, Moses? Really? You brought us out here to just get annihilated? 
But they didn't know that God was about to do something so miraculous that it was even beyond their imagination. And guess what happened? You know the story, Red Sea separates. They cross over on dry land. They get to the other side and what did they find out? They look back and guess what? Water caves in and just completely annihilates the Egyptian armies that were previously barreling down upon them. It looked like their death was going to be imminent. And instead, Egyptian bodies are washing up on the seashore dead. God did that for them. So what do they do? They sing this awesome song, and you guys could read it for yourselves, Exodus chapter 15. And it's a really cool uh, song, but that's not the one I want to direct your attention to. The song of Moses is actually uh, more appropriate to the actual people themselves. You find that in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Would you turn there with me? We're not going to read the whole prayer because it's a, it's a long one. But Deuteronomy chapter 32, here's what happens. We're at the end of the life of Moses. At the end of Moses' life, and this guy, he had to have been patient. At the end of his life, what does he do? He writes a song, a song given to him by God, and he writes this song, and the whole chapter of 32, it speaks about who they are as a people and who God is and what God is all about. It speaks to the fact that they will be taken care of and they will be taken to uh, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, and they will be prosperous, and he will watch over them but God also knows them, and he also knows what's going to happen. In this land of prosperity, flowing with milk and honey, they would begin to fall into the thought that they're the ones that are making this happen through themselves. They would also kind of grow, quite literally, it says you'll grow fat. And you'll grow into this person that will then become prone to playing the harlot. That means seeking after foreign gods and worshiping them. There are some indictments in this song. There's some, some cutting things that are very true, but it's a song nonetheless that Moses gives to the people. And then after he writes that song, he sings it to them, and they hear it. And it's said right there, the purpose of this song Well, I'll go back to the previous chapter. I'll just read it, verse 21. Then it shall be, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give to them. Look, I already know what's going to happen, God's saying. And I already know the sin that they're going to fall into after I take them to a land that they're not even there yet. And he tells Moses, I want you to write this down. Here's a song. And then Moses did so, and he sang it to them in chapter 32. 
Read that for yourself on your own time. I encourage that. But I will point out one scripture that is kind of like a direct parallel to the song of the lamb that we see in our text. And that's chapter 32, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. It says, it starts off really awesome. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Oh, God's mean. He's not fair. He, all he wants to do is bring all this wrath and destruction. That's so cruel, is it? That's not what we're told here. It's the exact opposite. No, his ways are justice. And in him, there is no injustice. Righteous and upright is he. The ways of God is 100% upright. And the judgments that will be poured out, as we'll see in future chapters, are quite literally to take people out of their own misery, just like he did with the Amorites back in the Old Testament. He quite literally delivered them from a self-destructive lifestyle that they were already in. They kind of doomed themselves. Even after opportunity to turn to him. Back to our text with that scripture that we just read in mind. Back to uh, chapter 15, verse 4. Or excuse me, let's continue in verse 3. They sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, watch this, watch the parallel. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. That is how we tie these two songs together. Verse 4, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Verse 4 actually um, fulfills a prophecy given in the book of Zechariah. Let's turn there real quick. I always have you guys flipping to uh, different books. And apparently I forgot my tab, or did I? Yes, I did. So Zechariah. See, I got to be on my toes. You guys are going to get there before me. Okay, Zechariah chapter 14. Let's see. Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. Okay, so Zechariah chapter 14. That, that verse, uh, verse 4, is a fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah tells us, Chapter 14, verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king 
and the Lord of hosts and to keep the feast of tabernacles. This is speaking of a time when after all of the wrath is poured out, after all of the, the death and all of that, when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem during the millennium, it seems clear here that there's going to be the Feast of Tabernacles will be reinstated, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what is that? That is that one uh, once a year week-long celebration commemorating God bringing the Israelites through the wilderness. And once a year, they'd have a week-long celebration remembering that, the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, Zechariah is saying in the last days, meaning the, during the millennium, all nations will come, they will be invited to come and to celebrate this uh, before the Lord and worship the king, king being capitalized there, important, Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts of tabernacles. Now, everyone's invited. All are invited all nations. It says everyone who is left alive to come before the Lord and to take part in this celebration. But not all will come. The next verse tells us, and it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Ooh. Interesting. Keep in mind that when we talk about things like rain and, and that sort of thing, we're talking about the Jews and the Israelites. They were uh, an agrarian society. They grew crops. They, so that's why you, you see all the parables about you know planting seed and, and reaping harvests and waiting for the, the latter rains and all of these things. Uh, a Jew would understand exactly what this means. That's bad. If no rain is happening, which we're not in any shortage of uh, here in the great Northwest at all, any year, but especially this year, it seems like we have a revisit of like 1988 uh, when I first moved here. Um, but yeah, we're, we're seeing winters of old as far as I'm concerned. Um, the drought years for us was only like 60 inches of rain. Uh, that year. But anyway, uh, be that as it may, no rain, that's a big deal. That would be terrible. That's why that's mentioned. It's like, on them, no rain. <gasps> what? That, well, that means crops aren't going to grow. That means there's going to be famine. And indeed, this message speaks to you and I directly today. We are all invited to come through those doors of this house and worship the Lord, before the Lord, and to get into God's word, and to worship in song, and to have fellowship one with another, in like-mindedness. I share my troubles and trials, and you pray for me, and likewise, I do the same for you. We're all invited, but what happens to me if I decide, mm, no, I'm good? I'm invited, but man, I... I just, I don't want to go and hear that book of Revelation again. I mean, I just went through it with him at men's study on Saturday mornings for like nine months. And now we're going to go through it again on Thursday. I'm not going. 
or I've gone through that book, or I've heard that teaching. We, man, we've been there. And what can happen is as we pull away, we start experiencing a dryness in our soul and in our spirit. We're not hearing the word. We're not, our faith isn't being uh, exercised because we're not hearing the word of God being taught. We're not, uh, you know, lifting praise and worship up to the Lord as a congregation. And Pastor had kind of touched on this um, uh, either Sunday or a couple of teachings ago. And he's right, and that is we saw an interesting thing during the pandemic when in the early stages of it, we did our due diligence. We did, uh, nobody knew how bad this pandemic was. So in learning that, we took precautions and we did go uh, church online. We all learned how to Zoom or Teams or whatever we did. We Zoomed, didn't we? And uh, so we're all doing church on TV. Um, I did not like that. I don't know about you. I just didn't like it. I knew it was necessary. But, you know, we got a sense after some time went by and after a lot of prayer and a lot of seeking uh, the heart of the Lord, we realized, you know what? What did Jesus tell us? It says, don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. And, Lord, you, we belong to you. So it's one of those things where, like, we don't want to be ignorant and we don't want to be careless. I mean, we had both doors open, air flowing through here, and, you know, we all had turtlenecks and jackets on because we were freezing, but that's what the pastor was led to do, so we were good. He was up here in a Hawaiian shirt <laughs> saying it was refreshing, and we all knew better. But the point is, we did our due diligence, but we still came and gathered. And guess what happened? I immediately felt refreshed. I was drying up at home on TV because it's inevitable. Oh, we're going to watch church on TV. And okay, good. And then, okay, we get started. And the dogs need out. Oh, come on. Okay, go. Now go and quit bugging me. Oh. Ding! Pancakes are done. Cool. <laughs> oh, okay, now back where, okay, back at it, okay. Now the dogs want in. Oh, come on. You're dealing with them. And it was distraction after distraction, and you're like, ah, I don't like this. Because our heart's desire was to be here. But given the circumstances, again. And you know what? It was great to be back. We came back. Some never made it back. And that hurts my heart. Some never made it back. And it's not an indictment. I look at it like this. The enemy knew exactly what he was doing with that attack. He was attacking the church, and he thought, you know what? How do I break them up? I'll create something that will keep them apart from each other and not be able to gather. It was a clear attack from the enemy. It, it, it definitely was. We saw it. We knew it. Because he knew that would hurt us. What happens when I am invited but stay away? I dry up. I don't get the rains. I feel famine in my heart and in my soul. And that's what it says right there. No rain. That would be very bad news to the readers of that day. It's bad news to us today as well. The invitation is, the Lord would say, 
get in fellowship, get here. Be with your brothers and sisters. Pray for and with one another. Listen to my word being taught. Sing praises unto me, and I will bless you richly. Back to our text. Verse 5, after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. These angels are coming out, and they are, they're, gir- they're dressed in bright white, but they have golden bands across their chest, and that is a symbol or a picture of pure hearts. They're coming with pure hearts to pour out wrath on people? Yeah, because it's now time for this depravity that the world is in. It's now time for this sin to be dealt with. And they have pure hearts in doing so. Verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. Obviously, those bowls are not quite filled yet. You got to wonder how close to the brim it is, though. Don't you? I think about those things like, man, it's got to be like right there. It's got to be right there. But I don't know. That's impossible for me to know. But given everything that I see and you see and we sense and feel and observe in our world, wow, it's got to be close. They're not full yet, but they will be. And when they are, these angels will be given these bowls full of wrath of, of the wrath of God, something so terrible we can't even imagine. Verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Jesus is coming back very soon. Now, those words that I just said, some people would say, yeah, I know, yeah. I've heard that my whole life. And there have been generations that have said that because there's been pastors that preached that. And it's interesting throughout all of time, the people who have studied the end times through the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, all the way centuries ago, even all the way till current day, they've all felt that sense that, oh my goodness, the Lord is coming back. And they've all had that sense that his return is so near. But man, like it's so true. Can't you just feel it today? In the 1800s, The mark of the beast seemed like something that was inexplicable. And we've been spending some time talking about uh, what they're doing with the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, and how that is actually trying to be passed in states. And it was passed in South Dakota, and 
Uh, Governor Christie Nome vetoed that. We're waiting to see when that goes back to session on veto day, how the outcome of that. But that kind of stuff right there, in the 1800s, they didn't have all that. They had gold and uh, two bits or what I mean, what, whatever currency they use, I mean, money, cash. But I mean, they, we're seeing things today opening before our very eyes. And remember how we talked about in the last days, Jesus said that these things would increase with rapidity. In other words, it would be like a, a chronograph or a tachometer on your car. The, the more you rev it up, the faster that engine turns and the, the faster and the higher that dial goes. Aren't you feeling that today? There's this sense of urgency that the world is trying to uh, initiate and incorporate all of these things all at once with the economy. We see uh, huge, huge geopolitical plays happening just this last week with China and Russia meeting together for a three-day summit with, and, and having alliances and agreements made with one another. They're unifying countries coming together. And they support any country that comes against the West, meaning us, uh, President uh, President Xi's uh, parting words to uh, Putin, interpreted, I, I read it on the screen, said, uh, after a hundred years, we are making changes. And Putin said, yes, we are, my friend. The hundred years he's referring to is the hundred years of dominance that the United States has had globally as a superpower. They don't recognize that anymore. They don't see that. They don't see us as that power anymore. Moves are being made. Saudi Arabia and Iran coming together in peace treaties as well. You saw that in the news too. Who they've been bitter enemies for how many decades? And now they're together. These alliances and geopolitically, they're starting to come together and things are happening before our very eyes. And we read Revelation and we go, wow. How can, how can you not see that the return of Jesus is at the very threshold? We're not just in the last days. We're in the last of the last days, the last minutes, I believe. Things have to happen very quickly. Elections are coming up in our own country. What if a DeSantis or a Trump got in office? They're going to reverse all this things that we see as stupidity, and they do too. So things have to happen quickly. And that's why China's on the move, and, and they're on the move for the CBDC and, and getting rid of cash and all these things. Man, that kind of is alarming, you say. Well, it could be. These are boisterous waves hitting us on this side, and there's a CBDC boisterous wave hitting on this, and then we find news of China and Russia, and these boisterous waves, and we're just, our eyes are on that, and guess what Jesus says? He says, hey, eyes right here. Focus on me. I've got you. Just stay with me. I have you. I'm in control. Why? What did we say? I'm on the throne. I'm in control. I am triumphant. I am the first, the last. I'm all powerful and I'm in control and I have you right here. And I have to remind myself that. I'm, I'm encouraging you tonight. Why? Because I have to remind myself that almost every day. You know who I feel sorry for? News anchors. Well, at least the ones that tell the truth, the truthful news. I mean, they, they try looking for some good news, just kind of in their program, like, hey, uh, but on the good news, um, a, a puppy was saved on a freeway. We had to scrounge for that good news story. 
after we told you about CBDC and China and Iran and them getting the nuke in 12 days and all that. I mean, it's like, I feel sorry for them. <laughs> They're like, try to have a good evening with your family. But we're excited. Having said all that, this is exciting times we live in. We live in the most exciting times ever in history. Think about it. The chances of you and I getting raptured and taken to heaven with our Lord is incredibly good, very good. And that should be exciting to us. Your achy back is gonna be over in a billionth of a second. We covered that. How, how cool will that be? Yeah. <laughs> Your depression over like that. Your, you know, here's what the Lord's doing with us right now. We can, we, we get discouraged. Our plans just, we have all these plans and we're almost there and it's like, yeah, nope. We can get depressed about that. But what the Lord is doing is he is minimizing our affections for this world. He's starting to take those away from us. Don't be tied to this world. I'm going to take that affection and I'm going to take that plan because that, that's of the world. And I'm, going to, I'm, I'm taking your affections away from this world and I want you to focus on me because I'm out here on the water, this, this glassy sea, and you're going to be here with me. You just got to keep your eyes on me. He's minimizing our affections for this world. More and more and more, I talk to Christians. They're like, I just want the Lord to come back. I'm like, amen. Amen. That's how it should be. We should all have that. Never should we be, well, I want the Lord to come back, but in like 10 years. Because I got all these things I want to do. I don't know anyone who's saying that anymore. I used to. I used to know people would say that. Not anymore. Everyone else is like, come back now, Lord. Please. <laughs> Get us out of here. Because we do feel those boisterous waves and that turbulence, and we're feeling banged around and, and all, that, all that stuff. But my encouragement is stay focused on the Lord. Be in fellowship so you don't dry up. Hear God's word, read it, get close to him, learn of him. And what did we say last week? He'll give you rest for your souls, the place you want it the most.